This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We've been talking a lot about uh, the provincial election in the last uh, several weeks. Oh, it seems like years, doesn't it? And, of course, uh, lots of polls. When this whole thing first started, uh, the Doug Ford progressive conservatives were way out in front. And then, of course, debates, what have you. And all of a sudden, we saw the uh, conservatives drop and Andrea Horvath's NDP start a, uh, a surge. That's pretty much tapered off. But if you look at polls, people will pretty much say that this is neck and neck. Yet, on the other hand, they'll say, but Doug Ford's on his way to a majority. Why are we talking about popular vote when it doesn't really count? And does this influence voters heading to the polls or even whether they show up? Let's bring in Paul Thomas, postdoctoral fellow, Department of Political Science and Program Fellow, Riddell Graduate Program in Political Management, Carleton University, and is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. So, Paul, what can we uh, what, what can we read from these polls? What what is your opinion as we head into the uh, last day of this campaign? Well, I think right now um, it is in many ways too close to call. the The polls show, um, as you said, an NDP surge, uh, drop in support for the Conservatives, at least where they are, and the Liberals falling far, far behind. Uh, what's going to be really important tomorrow is the the turnout. So, I mean, the NDP support tends to be concentrated often amongst the young and those who work in particular sectors, and so it will really be a matter of seeing if they turn up. Um, and you also talked about this this divide between whether the NDP might win the popular vote but lose in terms of the seats, and that is something that is really, I mean, as much as there's models, it is going to be really hard to predict. Um, it assumes, in a lot of cases, that voters have enough knowledge about what's going on in their own community to sort of cast a strategic ballot. And because of the way polling is done, I mean, most of the polls have only a sample of about a 1,000 people across the province. And if you break that down by 124 ridings, it's just very hard to make those sorts of predictions. Um, so I think it is right now anyone's game. Yeah, probably the greatest probability is for a PC government, but I'm less sure that it's going to be a majority. What would completely surprise you tomorrow? I mean, we've we've seen some um, elections in recent memory. Actually, I mean, even in... In 2012, <laughs> 2014, no one really expected the Liberals initially to get back in. Um, so to mo- I, w- I would be surprised most by an NDP majority. I think that would be a long shot. Um, and yet, it, there, there are those chances. What I really think is going to be surprising is the extent to which the Liberal vote collapses. Hmm. I think a lot of people are going to be thinking quite seriously about their, their total preference. And for many voters on... I guess the, the center and left or center, um, who have previously voted liberal or NDP, who might ask themselves, you know, what's, what really matters to me? Do I, do I care if there's a couple of liberals in parliament or do I want to keep Doug Ford and the conservatives from gaining power? I think the latter question will likely win out. And so there might be people who would otherwise vote liberal go in and vote NDP in the hopes of shaping that outcome. And in many ways, I think this prediction about uh, a conservative majority is more likely to make that happen. Uh, Wynn, of course, came out on the weekend, pretty much conceded defeat and, and and said that they're not going to win the next election. However, you should still vote for her, not for the win, but in order to stop the other two from gaining a majority. We all know this is most likely uh, a last-ditch attempt for them, to, you know, from losing uh, official party status, which which takes eight seats and, and obviously comes with lots of financial perks. Uh, that being said, um, can't this backfire? Won't this go in either direction? Couldn't this go in either direction simply by splitting the vote? To be honest, I, I think it will backfire from what was intended, um, because that kind of plea in many ways makes the most sense if there was no clear front runner. So if, if it was something where the polls were sort of leaning one way to an NDP minority or to a conservative minority, then saying, you know what, vote liberal and we'll hold whichever minority it is to account makes sense. But when the, the question facing voters is, do you want a conservative majority or something else, I think a lot of the, as I said, a lot of the, the voters who might normally lean liberal will hear, oh, wait, you're not going to win. 
and their second preference is something closer to the NDP than it is something to the Conservatives. So I, I was really surprised by that strategy. Um, I, I think it could work in certain circumstances, but it was just given what the poll showed, I don't think that voters necessarily will... will <laughs> I think many voters would rather see some of their preferences um, in a continuation of some of the programs that they like them to do the Liberals uh, remain under the NDP rather than having the Conservatives take power. Um, what happened to the centre in all of this, Paul? <laughs> it seems as if the Liberals kept going farther and farther to the left, farther and farther to the left, just to, and, and literally taking everything out of the NDP shopping cart, it appears. And, and there's this massive gap in the middle. Is this not a missed opportunity for any political party? It, it's really surprising just how the centre has been vacated. I had a friend who moved to British Columbia a few years ago, who wrote back just, just asking that exact question. And I think it was, it was part of a strategic plan by the Liberals, and it made sense in an environment where most of the debates right now are revolving around um, this left-right divide, where the Liberals saw that there was... They, they wanted to have the benefit of a centrist focus on good government, and economic responsibility will being the caring face, the, the face of the party that will provide you know, money for hospitals, uh, support for schools and education, higher minimum wage, and they were hoping to straddle that divide. The difficulty is that the, the PCs then moved into that space in large part. Um, what the, the people's guarantee that Patrick Brown put together mm. was in many ways <laughs> would have been in... It in was very center. It was. It would. It, in 2003, it could have been the liberal platform. Yeah. Um, but now, if in many ways, Doug Ford, he has not promised to move the party back in ter- to the right in terms of the role of government in society. He hasn't promised any major cuts, but he has moved the party to the right in terms of its stance on taxes. So calling for lower corporate taxes, middle-class tax cuts, and to some extent, um, tax cuts, or I should say a change in policy on the minimum wage. What's challenging with that approach is that it's not sustainable. You can't have um, a big government spending on a small government budget. And so eventually it would, I mean, it, it seems reminiscent of the, um, the star of the beast approach, as they call it in the United States. You have a government that comes in first on a promise of lowering taxes, knowing that eventually it will create a crunch down the line and you'll have to cut services to respond to a deficit. So you first create a crisis and then you respond to it. Mm. Um, And that seems to be much more what the conservative plan is leaning to as compared to what, say, Mike Harris did. where He said, you know what, we're going to have a government that does less with less. He was going to be up quite up front about we will will cut your taxes and we will cut what government does. Mm -hmm. Um, Doug Ford has sort of promised one side but not the other. Will the Liberals move more towards the right for the next election, or is it inevitable that sooner or later we're, Ontario will, be, will have a socialist government? I think you will see the Liberals um, moving more to the right, um, depending on how the NDP position themselves and what the lesson is. Um, I mean, right now, I keep wondering... If this is going to wind up being like the Saskatchewan election, I think it was in 1999, that generally saw the death of the Liberal Party in that province. And afterwards, what you had was some of the more right-leaning liberals moved to the Saskatchewan Party, and the left-leaning liberals moved to the NDP. And ever since, it's been a polarized sort of two-party system. Right now, Ontario, in many ways, has been one of the outliers in the provinces. Most provinces tend to to be more of a two-party system as compared to the federal level, just because it's a a smaller range of interest to accommodate. And so it it will be interesting to see if the Liberals can reclaim that space, Um, especially if we do wind up in this scenario having having the other third party um, come in in the form of the Greens. So if we if we have a legislature where there's, you know, two large contingents of NDP and conservatives, and then perhaps four or five liberals and one green, it may be hard for the liberals to redefine themselves and try to recapture voter support in that environment. It's certainly not impossible. I mean, the NDP came back from near extinction and now um, have are on the cusp, perhaps, of at least taking the official opposition or maybe even in a Hail Mary forming government. Yeah, but let's be uh, honest. Is this all about policy, or is this about people holding their nose and just not knowing who the heck to vote for? 
Oh, I think there is a certain amount of that. I mean, and part of the Liberals' trouble is, is just well beyond policy, is that their brand has accumulated... All governing parties accumulate scandals and problems just by virtue of being the people in power when things go wrong. And it may have been that many of them would have gone wrong no matter who was there, but it's just they're the ones who take the blame. So there is a certain need for the Liberal brand to be distanced from governing for a while to help rebuild. Why was there so many Liberals that thought the left was such a big prize? Why are the Liberals battling over the left? I think right now it has been... I think things changed a lot in Canadian politics following the 2008 recession, where all of a sudden we moved from this idea that deficits were terrible to an idea that investing in social programs, investing in infrastructure was okay. And we haven't quite gone back to that old mentality. So when voters, you know, generally became supportive of greater spending, in in many ways it made sense for the Liberals and they were able to win elections on that. It also allowed them to demonize um, the HUDAC um, Tory leadership and John Tory himself um, as being people who would cut, as people who would take things away. And I mean, most of the research we have shows that voters are risk averse. So if they have something now, they will act to defend it rather than take a gamble that maybe if they sacrifice now, something might be better down the road. People will rather keep the perks that they have. And so that has helped the liberals. I mean, in many ways, their election strategy has been about that. They didn't promise to raise the minimum wage if they were reelected. They raised the minimum wage and said, you'll lose it if you don't vote for us. And so liberals have in many ways been gambling, gambling on that idea that a voter provided with a benefit now will act in order to keep it rather than holding it for the promise of some you know, disciplined um, benefit down the road. Uh, if Doug Ford was not the PC leader, would we be even having these discussions? <laughs> that's, that's a very good question. And I, I think if Patrick Brown had continued... Uh, I think it would be a very different conversation. He what would, would that conversation be like? I think it would be much more about the credibility of the liberal brand as compared to the credibility of the PCs. And Patrick Brown did quite a lot to detoxify um, the conservative brand around saying, we will not cut. He made them much more progressive in terms of, say, supporting the new sex ed curriculum. He marched in pride parades. And he really basically as we were saying, tried to make them more like what the Liberals were circa 2003. Or even what the Conservatives were of the Bill Davis era. Very much, yeah. No, I mean, Bill, Bill Davis would have been happy with that document, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so that... And so and let, me ask you, let me ask you this then. So if, why don't the Conservatives look back to when they had success, i.e. the Bill Davis era? I think their, I guess their, their electoral coalition, if you want to call it that, has changed. Um, we saw it in the leadership race that the party uh, now has a different set of, of actors. So there's a strong social conservative base that is much more activist than it once was. Um, that had been sort of, I mean, it was Tanya Granick Allen's supporters who in many ways pushed Doug Ford over the top. And they also have, and this is just something globally, there's, there is a, a greater trend towards having a more libertarian group of people who want smaller governments and lower taxes, and trying to forge a party that can remain united while having those constituents within it has been more challenging. At the same time, we did see the liberals, um, especially in the 1990s, um, moving further toward, to embrace people who might be socially progressive and fiscally conservative. And so they, they took some of the people who might traditionally have been Bill Davis supporters, the red Tories, as we like to call them. Right. So the conservative, the conservative coalition today looks a fair bit different than it did under Bill Davis, where it's now a bit more socially conservative, or at least that's the manifestation that seems to have put Doug Ford in power. And it also contains this element of support. I mean, people who may have broken off um, a bit, like with Randy Hillier, but still who are supporters of a more libertarian idea. And it it is a lot harder for them to govern keeping all of those people in their tent. Uh, Maybe I'm going to sound like an old guy here, but aren't most Canadians or Ontarians fiscally conservative and socially liberal? I think, traditionally, yes, but I do think that changed a bit 
when right. we, we have gone through. The, the idea, deficit was a four-letter word for such a long time. But if even Stephen Harper could embrace them, I think it did change the conversation. Mm. Um, and we've seen now, if anything, this, I mean, the liberals federally were rewarded for promising to run deficits. Mm. People didn't want to see that spending turn off. In large part, what the strange thing about it is that voters now are more willing to see governments run deficits than they are seeing modest tax rises but to is ensure that, balanced budgets. Is that pendulum swinging back? Because look where Ontario's liberals are. I mean, people are lots of people are saying, "I can't afford Kathleen Wynne anymore." It's it's true. They, I mean, they they are saying that, but. The conservative platform that was going to run against Kathleen Wynne would not actually have promised a major, even even now, what Doug Ford is promising, would not be a major change in terms of government spending. He hasn't promised to end many of the programs that Kathleen Wynne has brought forward. If anything, he's uh, most of the economists have said that his platform would actually increase the federal or the provincial deficit um, rather than bring us back towards budget. So right now, Ontarians do seem to be locked in a preference for, for larger government spending. I mean, in the Northern Ontario leaders debate, Ford promised more money for firefighters, more money for hospitals, more money for doctors. And there was nothing about what he would cut to return us to a balanced budget. Right. Is this next election, tomorrow's election, is this about people voting for the party or voting for the leader? I think it is hard to see what the PCs stand for right now other than their leader. Uh, they had a very elaborately developed platform, the People's Guarantee, that was put forward, ratified by convention, and then it was just thrown out. And now it seems to be largely um, what Doug Ford has decided it will be. But at the end of the day, one man doesn't run the whole party. I mean, how far, how far back in the file can the People's Guarantee be, if you know what I mean? This is true, um, but I, I think if, if voters go to the polls, I... I I, th- I think it will be very hard for them to distinguish the Doug Ford brand from the PC brand, um, just the way that the leadership race unfolded and what have you. Uh, I mean, there is there is certainly um, a linkage between what the progressive conservatives stand for, what the federal conservatives stand for, and seeing that in opposition to the liberals. But I think this is much more, in the way it has been framed in the media as a choice between Kathleen Wynne or Doug Ford, um, or now Andrew Horvath and Doug Ford, it, the focus is much more on the leaders. Um, and especially since there is, in many ways, a lot of policy agreement amongst them. No one is going to be making major cuts that would change um, the fiscal outlook for the province. Uh, right now, I, I do think it comes down to who has credibility, and Kathleen Wynne has lost that battle. And so the next question becomes between Doug Ford and Andrea Horvath. Paul Thomas has been with us, postdoctoral fellow, uh, Riddell graduate program in political management, Carleton University. Paul, fascinating discussion. Going to be interesting. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Hamilton City Council has opted to hear from the public on oversized pot greenhouses. Uh, One councillor in particular upset that uh, uh, one company wants to take uh, their greenhouse to 140,000 square feet. And I guess the current uh, I guess the current cap on these facilities with the city is 22,000 square feet. To talk more about all of this, Dan Malik is with us, health sciences professor, Brock University and is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, no problem. I'm going to play you a clip here from uh, Councillor uh, Lloyd Ferguson on this issue. My conscience won't allow us to destroy our beautiful prime agricultural land that should be used to grow food for the public. In farmers feed cities. That's what the bumper sticker says, and that's what we should continue doing. Are we now going to put bumper stickers up, farmers make cities high? I don't think they'll be proud of that. I'm not sure this is an argument about the size of a greenhouse no. or the argument about whether you're in, you're uh, you're in, you're you're happy with the law that's coming that says pot yeah. recreational pot will be legalized. How do you uh, how do you interpret that, Dan? Uh, yeah, I think that you sort of bang on there. There's a few few interesting issues when it comes to the idea of larger 
um, greenhouses for cannabis. Um, and, and, and as you know, I, I like to look at the language. So whenever we talk about cannabis, quote, grow ops, it sort of puts it in a, a negative light, which seems to be what this is being called. Now, 22,000 square foot um, operation is the largest. The, um, the rules around the area, I, I can't remember who's, who's, whose rules they are, but it's, it's just a regional uh, distinction yeah. for cannabis um, growing operations. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a current well, rur- it's a current specific. rural official plan that uh, caps right. them at twenty two thousand. But it's only for cannabis um, operations. Other operations can be larger, right? Right. Um, when I hear that, because I live in St. Catharines, and there was a lot of concern around um, more tender fruit being um, pulled up for wineries, right? Right for grapes. I think of the same thing. There wasn't that same kind of argument, and yet grapes make wine, right? Yeah. So, so there's that kind of interesting disconnect about what do we see as a, um, as a legitimate use of farmland. So this um, was this debate happened uh, prior to the the thriving wine industry that we see now in Niagara, which was obviously largely fruit. Now a, a lot of that fruit operation is yeah. is 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 vinery is, is wine. That's right. Yes, you see a lot of peaches and plums and that being um, dug up and and. The, the lucrative crop of, of wine um, mm-hmm. vines being uh, of great yeah great vines for wine being uh, being planted and there wasn't there was concern by farmers and I actually know a farmer who voiced concern and then eventually his family opened the winery um, but they <laughs> but we didn't we didn't see the same kind of moral sort of yeah. moral based concern I mean I, I think you're right that that this is a it's more about the product that isn't considered to be um, necessarily legitimate yet versus the uh, actual um, use of land for is it um, the food. is it the bumper sticker uh, line that sort of <laughs> took this uh, took the credibility away from this comment uh, yeah I guess I mean that's where I started laughing I'm sorry <laughs> I don't know if you heard that but yeah it was I mean the, the idea of you know farms do feed cities right but um, there are a lot of uh, stuff that is grown that is turned into um that is turned into non food products barley for example hops for example right so so it's it, it is a target on this particular product and i think uh, i've been reading over some of the senate debates over the last few days and and we get the same kind of argument that it's a veiled um, concern around one issue, but really it's just we oppose cannabis being legalized. I don't know that particular counselor's um, angle on it, but it does seem to be, we do see that rhetoric a lot, you know, trying to get a different, um, a different bigger hot button issue or similar hot button issue about agriculture, and uh, which is a big issue in our, in the green belt, right? About um, the amount of agricultural land and using that as a way of beating the the question of the, the, the whether cannabis laws should should be passed right uh that being said um Mm -hmm. are these size limits out of date i mean at the end this is a legal crop it's an arc it's a it's an agricultural crop and and you know if you drive down niagara you see tons of greenhouses uh does it matter if they're growing cucumbers inside them or cannabis yeah, I think that's one of the arguments, the counter arguments to that statement was that, yeah, you don't know what's inside. Um, what it does matter, what, what's interesting right now is that the rules around medical um, cannabis um, is based upon a product that is in general use illegal, right? So medical marijuana needed a whole bunch of other controls, be they different types of sec- perimeter security, different types of cameras. I mean, there's cameras in these greenhouses on everything anyone does. It's, it's very controlled access to who can get into the greenhouse, all sorts of stuff, right? And this is all sort of Health Canada regulations based upon an issue of the security of the location and whether people are going to break in and try to steal it for illicit use. Once it's no longer um, an illegal product for recreational use, it will be interesting to see how that dynamic changes because if and as the as the federal government is arguing, this will undercut the black market, then it's not clear whether those federally mandated regulations around the security of the product will be necessary anymore, right? So they may look at the entire issue of 
um, the size I mean, I mean the, the, uh, of the product being sold and, and, and modify them. So it may be that the regions that have these sorts of small greenhouse, because we don't want maybe too much product being sold and too much of a, uh, too appealing for people to break into and steal, um, maybe that will not no longer be an issue, right, once it's legalized. Because Will that matter, not- though? Will it matter, though, once it's legal or not? Because it still is a valuable product. That, is that any different than anybody stealing, like organized crime, stealing a tractor trailer of booze from, you know, a warehouse somewhere or a truck somewhere and then selling it illegally under the table for half the cost? That That's, yeah, you're right. It, it, it may not matter, but right now um, the associations with, organized crime and cannabis are, are, are different. And I'm not sure of the rationale around um, uh, the, the medical marijuana um, uh, regulations through Health Canada. I don't know what the original rationale is, but when I read it, that's what I see is that kind of we're worried about the security of this. And they use the word security of this product um, and slipping into the wrong hands. There's always going to be that concern with any kind of regulated product like this. But it may be that once the um, law is, has changed and sort of, you know, after the first few months or years and we see how um, behaviors change around this, that that, that that concern around the size will not be such a big deal. And it might also be that the lucrativeness to the municipality of larger um, growing operations mm. um, will overrule or cancel out any concern about security, which may have been overblown to start with. Uh, Hamilton City Council, mm-hmm. as it always does, always looks for some sort of easy out. Uh, now they're going to mm-hmm. throw this to a public, uh, to the public to, to weigh in on. How does that change yeah. the discussion, or does it? Well, yeah, I, I guess it changes the discussion because sometimes we're surprised when the public isn't as bothered about something as, as councillors think. Um, or are more bothered about it because when it comes down to it, the councillors, you know, a cynic would say need to get reelected. A, an idealist would say need to be responsive to the public, right? Um, so yeah, it, it might change it if people living immediately adjacent to the um, properties are very or, are well organized and, and uh, voice their concern and are concerned. Um, it might also open up a lot of discussion around. That that suggests that it's not as big of a deal as as council might think it is, right? And there may be, you know, if they if they look into it, and I don't know the answer to this, but it might be that um, there's been very little concern about security in a, an operation like that, and maybe a bigger operation could be even more secure. I, I that that's my next know. question. It, yeah. I mean, how big should they be? Does it does it matter how big they are, or is things is something like security a problem in a larger facility? Um, yeah. Does, how, how, what is the ideal size for these things? I, I don't know, and I don't. I was try, I was um, scouring the Health Canada information, and I couldn't find anything stated about size. It is more about security of the premises, about um, perimeter, things like that. And I understand the company in question did um, uh, offer a compromise because they had wanted their facility to be even larger to reach to the edges of the property. I think 70% of the property was right. covered. And I think that they changed this. So um, so it could be that area of, of, of issue where it's just you know, I, I don't know how if, if bigger is easier to to um, to secure or not. I mean, I imagine a rectangle, <laughs> a mm. large rectangle or a smaller rectangular space just needs more cameras and more sort of you know perimeter kind of watching. I what if you're if, What if you're the farm or the resident or whatever that's living next to these things? Should you be concerned? Well, I mean that that's where it comes down to these questions about how. Um, how likely is it that these sorts of places would see criminal activity around them, right? And I don't know. Um, um, I also understand from colleagues who have visited um, larger uh, medical marijuana um, facilities that they do have a certain smell, as you can imagine, um, and it is vent- ventilated well. But whether that affects the neighbors um, is, I, I don't mean affects them neurologically, but affects yeah. them just in the scent and the smell in the neighborhood might be might be an issue. But again, it is this question of how many grow ops, sorry, grow ops, how many medical marijuana facilities have been knocked over, right? Mm. How many of them have seen actual like raids by gangs? And I don't remember hearing of any. So it, yeah. it may be that these are illusory. It may be that they're very 
they're very real concerns, and that's why there's so much security. Well, again, is this any different than the alcohol business, the pharmaceutical yeah. business? I mean, it's the same yeah. thing, right? Well, the one well, the one difference with the alcohol business is the portability of the product, right? Mm. Um, it's lighter usually, um, but the pharmaceutical. Yeah, I don't know that pharmaceutical. I don't know if um, the company that makes Oxy, for example, has probably does have some good security, and it's even more portable of a product. So. All right, a new, to look at that. Uh, another angle here. Uh, mm-hmm. Canada marijuana survey suggests two-thirds of current consumers will switch to buying legal. This has been a concern on, you know, as far as price and taxes. Uh, are people going to give up what they have in order to go through a, um, you know, an LCBO-type system? Canadians yeah. who currently use cannabis expect to buy nearly two-thirds of their pot from legal retail store once recreational becomes legal in Canada. Surprised by those numbers? Um. Not really. Uh, I'm, I'm, I guess in a way because, I don't know, I clearly I don't know, um, because it's, it's a nice high number uh, and it's before the details of the, of the vending go hmm. um, become public. I mean, we know a few locations and things like that. So the idea that people are just saying, yes, I will turn to a legal source um, sort of confirms the pattern that I saw with prohibition where people really just wanted to be able to consume this product, and they would do, they would jump through the hoops, um, the, the the more hoops to access um, legal product. Um, however, I think that the numbers break down into uh, people who are casual users would be more likely um, uh, than people who are regular users, and right. I can't remember the exact numbers. Um, yeah, I think it's something like 60, 40, half, half of frequent users and 69% of periodic users would use it, which means, you know, another half, half of the frequent users are still saying they would go to their regular um, illegal source. So, uh, One yeah. more thing I want to run by, Canada's marijuana market could surpass liquor sales by 2020. Do you think that's accurate? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's – that, that number always surprises me because – from what I've read, as far as money goes, the illegal market is already surpassing right. liquor. How do legal? How, how do liquor producers feel about this? Uh, are we going to see arguments over tax and such? Because uh, they're they're already using the argument that you know this is going to take a big chunk out of our business, and you're taxing us up the yin yang. Uh, yeah. Well, on, on on recreational cannabis, they're keeping it low. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I'm not sure how how they're seeing this actually, um, but I. As, as we've discussed before, it's really important to keep the taxes low to to encourage the sorts of numbers that we just saw in that um, survey uh, of people who are willing to move to the the legal system. And then, you know, once I mean, the argument can be like this: once you kill the black market, which you never really um, completely undermine it, um, once you really weaken the black market, then you can gradually increase. Right. taxes um, to recoup in the argument will be the cost of you know enforcement and things like that right as opposed to just enriching the government um, but uh, yes but I don't know how the how the liquor industry will respond to this um, if they're going to I mean it yeah I, I really can't even predict Dan Malik has been with us health sciences professor Brock University author of try to control yourself the regulation of public drinking in post prohibition Ontario Dan as always thanks for the time much appreciated thanks Scott cheers you're listening to the Scott Thompson show weekdays from noon to three on am 900 CHML lots to talk about with Alyssa Freeman uh, PR and pop culture expert principal at Alyssa Freeman PR uh, a little election a little Miss America she is with us now Alyssa thanks so much for the time we always appreciate it oh I always love talking to you Scott Luke and I were just talking because uh, my producer because a, a note just came across from the NDP and we were speaking of how it appears how it appears how it is Everybody has really embraced fake news and the just astronomical numbers that people are putting out in regard to job losses or this or that or, you know, nurses unemployed or teachers that are going to like, my goodness, like after anyone gets elected, I don't think any of us are going to be working by the sounds of it. Does this stuff resonate with people? I mean, I just got another one across the desk right now. Uh, This is from the Ontario NDP. Ford cuts mean over 60,000 layoffs in the GTA. It's like, really? And and again, we're seeing it with with everything. 
It doesn't matter what the party is, they're all saying it. You know what? I mean, listen, it's 24 hours, right, Scott? Or who, who knows how much, how yeah. long until you actually get results. But everybody's pulling out all the stops now. So nothing matters. Nobody's being careful. Everybody's just doing what they think they need to do. So, of course, they're going to start with the rhetoric, and they're going to put out things that are maybe half true or sort of true or could be true. And it's up to us, to, uh, it's up to us as the voter to decide. So, obviously, these messages are now coming thick and fast because there is still probably a good ju- chunk of Ontarians that are still in the undecided category. So all three parties are going to do what they need to do and say what they feel that they need to say, whether it's right, wrong, or fake, in order to help sway those undecided votes their way. Do you think there's that many undecided right now? You know what? It's really hard uh, what to believe. Um, One of the good websites that I actually go on is called... um, uh, too close to call. Mm-hmm. Too close to call. Ca. So I don't know if your listeners want to check that out, but honestly, it's one of the best ones in terms of really crunching the analytics. So if they want to check that, they'll see what I think is going to be the the closest approximation to what um, tomorrow night's results will will hold. You know, I don't know how. I mean, even if it's twenty percent that are still undecided, Scott, it's still twenty percent. Yeah, that's and true. it could certainly mean the fortunes for one party that may go into extinction, mm-hmm. the Liberals, yeah. um, or it might help boost the NDP, or it might they'll just say, you know what, I'm too scared of voting for the NDP, and I'm going to vote Conservative. So nobody is going to sit on their hands with twenty four hours to go when they know that they have the opportunity to grab some more votes. Uh, we all know there's a difference between the popular vote and the number of seats uh, we've seen in poll. All we hear in polls uh, since this whole campaign started, the beginning it was uh, the PCs were way out in front. And then, of course, uh, the NDP caught up. The, the PCs went down a bit. The NDP went up a bit. And then they were in a virtual tie. There was a time when the NDP were actually leading. Uh, and yet, you know, we hear that they're virtually tied. And yet, as you dig down deeper, you find out everybody's predicting, or a lot are predicting, uh, what could be, could be a PC majority. So how do you get from virtually tied to a PC majority? And I know it's popular vote versus uh, number of seats. We don't need to go there. But at the end of the day, <laughs> the tied thing doesn't matter if the end of the day they're going to win. So here's the thing. I think, and just like in and how the does that change perception? Border, what? And how does that change perception of the vote? Well, look what happened last in the last uh, U.S. presidential election. Nobody thought that Hillary would lose the way that she did lose yeah. uh, within the Electoral College because, you know, the Republicans were very savvy on how they went about getting the vote. And they knew what they needed to do to get the vote. And I think the conservatives are well aware of what they needed to do. So you have one party that's hanging on, one party that's, you know, gaining because of liberal ineptitude, and then one party who was supposed to sweep in with no competition. And I think at the beginning, everybody who wants change was not solidified yet in their vote and or they were unwilling to admit that they were going to vote conservative specifically because they didn't want to say out loud that they were going to vote for Doug Ford. And then you get a little bit closer to the election and people are thinking, you know what, the more and more I hear about this party's policies or that party's policies, I'm likely going to vote this way. So, uh, you know, when you hear about these polls, I I heard some really big discrepancies. I was hearing about these polls, you know, from Abacus, uh, you know, saying that, you know, the the NDP is now number one and now they're virtually tied. And then I was hearing some other intelligence for people who are kind of like deep inside some of the political parties that were saying, no, we're not getting that at all. So you sort of have to take polls with a grain of salt. That's why I kind of like going not to pure polls like some of your traditional pollsters, but but um, sort of providers that provide more of those deep analytics in the way that they come up with their results. What about uh, the dirt level in this uh, election campaign? Oh. It's got to the point now where it's family feud politics. Uh, of course, we know what's happening with the, the, uh, the Doug Ford scenario and, and Rob Ford's estate and such. Um, talk about how that's being handled by the other two parties. Have we gone to a new low here? Yes, 100%. Not just a new low, Scott, but absolutely scraping the bottom of the barrel. Hmm. If this wasn't an election, and you know, I posted about this today on LinkedIn. Maybe I'll share it also, too, on Twitter under Alyssa PR. But um, what I said was, is that if this was not an election and a very closely called election, that the two um, opposing leaders of the respective parties would have said, you know what, 
Um, you know, we hope that the family's okay. We're thinking of the children. This is a matter before the courts, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Neither party chose to do that. Kathleen Wynne put out a, a tweet that said, you know, this is the way the guy runs the business. This is the way the guy's going to run Ontario. That's and amazing. Andrea Horvath actually wow. doubled down on that. And I have to say, and then, and then, um, I was going through my Instagram, as I am wont to do often during the day, and then I see that the NDP has actually put out an Insta post that leverages this storyline of allegations. And it doesn't matter who I'm voting for here, but this is just, you know, common courtesy and ethics that are, that are leveraging the allegations that have been levied against Doug Ford by his sister-in-law and use that in order to bolster their own party platform. And then I went into the comments, and the people were absolutely vitriolic. They were, this is disgusting. If this is the way you choose to get votes, I'm not voting for you. So while these type of tactics may make the party faithful jump up and down with glee, we as voters, and we are a very savvy voting public here in Ontario, we as voters can often see through stories like this, which often have three sides. And I honestly don't think that this is a this was enough of a ploy in order to sway votes um, to either party. In fact, it may work absolutely in reverse, especially with the timing of it all. Well, listen, come on, like exactly three days before the election, uh, you know, somebody knew what they were doing. And did no one learn anything from the whole Patrick Brown fiasco? I mean, CTV's in court because of this. And can I tell you something else? This might have been one of Doug Ford's finest moments in front of the cameras. We saw him in the debate. The first one, disaster, not rehearsed. And then the second one, he was rehearsed, but still not an exemplary debater in front of the cameras. No. But here, he actually spoke like a human being. Yeah. And Good point. there was real feeling, there was real empathy, and there was nothing manufactured or key messaged about it. Hmm. It was so, Rob Ford, it was, sorry, it was Doug Ford getting back to being Doug Ford. Well, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, this actually may have backfired on the two parties. And I don't think that this is actually going to be as close to an election as we think it will be, but only time will tell. All right, let's move on and talk about Miss America. From politics to Miss America, there is a link here, though, because Donald Trump, I guess, was involved with one of these pageants. Uh, certainly not this one. I guess he was involved with Miss USA. That's right. Uh, now uh, Miss America saying they're going to say so long to the uh, swimsuit competition. Is it time to say so long to Miss America? No, I still think that there is a better platform for Miss America. Listen, I've watched Miss America ever since, you know, I was old enough to watch it, quite frankly. Really? And, yeah, I always liked those pageants. They held some sort of mystique to me. Um, And I think they did as young girls growing up. But then I kind of lost interest, and I certainly haven't been interested interested in over the last decade. So now they kicked out their CEO and most of their board uh, from last year, and they've replaced it with women. And they're thinking, okay, this is no longer going to be called a pageant. This is going to be called a competition. And now we are going to look at women's merits and judge them on their community involvement, to judge them on their intellect, judge them on a whole different uh, set of indicators that has nothing to do with not eating carbs for six months so you look great in a swimsuit. <laughs> so... Uh, I don't know. And don't ask me how I know about that not eating carbs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Good for you. Uh, So um, are people going to be interested in this? Are people interested in it anyway? I'm not sure that many people were interested in it when they were still having the swimsuit competition. I think it's lasted this long because people were still interested. And as long as they Mm -hmm. still had um, corporate sponsors to make this uh, pageant happen, they did. So now it's totally turned it on its ear. And now that it's no longer a pageant, it's a competition. Although I did read that the local and state competitions that feed into Miss America will still have the swimsuit um, entity this year, but the ultimate pageant in New Jersey uh, will not on the boardwalk come September. I think it's just before Labor Day. Yeah, September 9th in Atlantic City. Exactly, in Atlantic City. So I, I think that people will tune in right out of curiosity. And I think it's about time we change the conversation. You know, there comes to a certain age when I don't want to be judged how I look in a bikini. Mm. I may still wear one, but, you know, I'm not parading in front of thousands of people and millions across, beamed across the world. And I think that it's about time that we help people understand why the conversation is being changed, that there is a different way of looking at women, there is a different way of thinking about women and talking about women. And it should not be predicated on purely how they look.
Do we need a competition for that? I think that because there is one, there's a statement to be made. And the people who took over Miss America decided we have a very big platform. And because of the Me Too movement, we have done what could have been done, you know, for the past 90 years that this competition apparently has been running. So uh, I think that by using this platform, people felt that it was an opportune time to breathe new um, air and new fire into Me Too, but not in a way that is leveraged uh, on a- accusations, but instead is, w- is a way that is leveraged on the celebration of women. So uh, now that, uh, you know, it's less about looks, it's not about looks, it's about uh, the, the, the person that's, that's, that's wearing the gown, per se, for lack of a better phrase, uh, why don't we do the same thing for men? You know, it's interesting. You know, why not? Why hasn't there been a pageant? There's a bachelor, there's judge, a bachelorette. based on their, you know, uh, their bodies and, you know, what they, you know, how muscular they are and how tan they are and watch them strut. You know, I think it just smacks really of a double standard that somebody thought it was a great idea of, and that it would, I mean, remember how Miss America started. It was a tourism ploy for Atlantic City. So they felt that, you know, parading men in bathing suits or whatever they were, one-piecers at the time, uh, that wasn't going to be a draw. But certainly if you paraded women in bathing suits, that would certainly draw tourists to the boardwalk. So that age-old hypothesis is, has been turned on its head. So I think, I think this is predicated on a lot of, um, you know, age-old held beliefs that it was okay to talk about and judge women in this certain way. And it was never thought that, well, we never need to parade around men because, uh, mm-hmm. you know... They do it anyway. Because, well, they do it anyways, and people <laughs> maybe already thought them as a... Listen, women didn't get, or weren't able to vote yeah, until yeah. well into the 20s. So, yeah. you know, they were thought of as second-class citizens. But then, you know, when you think that these pageants were started as exactly you just said, you know, somebody in a swimsuit, that's what's bringing the people in. Um, you know, that it was a tourist attraction back then. Considering that these pageants were built on that... How can you retool them now and have the same effect? I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's treating, as you said, second-class citizens in a competition. Do we need that? Aren't we past that? You know, I think I'd like to tackle the first part of your question and at the beginning because you're right. How are we going to take a mindset and turn it 180? It's like, uh, Playboy. Are... It's like Playboy without the nudes. Well... You know, is it still relevant with Let's not go down No, there, but, but. <laughs> I, you know, I, the reason I'm saying that, Alyssa, I'm not, I'm not trying to be smug uh, here. No, the I, reason I'm saying it is that's why the magazine was created. So this is why the pageant is created. Does it, is it, if you take those elements out, is it still relevant? I think it becomes relevant in a different way. And I think that's what's, what is trying to be done here. You know, one of the spokespeople for the pageant is Gretchen Carlson, who did win, and now she's a has been for a while uh, an anchor on Fox News. And she certainly she was quoted as saying, "Well, listen, she didn't feel comfortable walking around in her bikini, and she knew that was only ten percent of the mark, so she knew she had to do better in all the other in all the other categories." And and listen, the pageant business is a business. TLC had a show for many years. Uh, toddlers and tiaras. Oh, yeah. About putting, you know, families who put their kids, you know, pretty little yeah. girls, dressed up in frills, thousands and thousands of dollars spent on costumes, and, you know, paraded them for them to display their beauty at such a young age when, you know, maybe they didn't realize what was happening. But I'll tell you, by three and four years old, they knew what was happening. They knew they had to perform. They knew they, they had to smile in order to be liked. They knew they had to stand in a certain way to be liked. They knew they had to perform in a certain way to be liked. Are these messages that we really need to perpetuate to our daughters? Mm-hmm. You know, these aren't necessarily things that are or philosophies that are going to turn around right away. But honestly, it gives a whole crop of little girls sort of a a new lease on life and how they can be viewed by the world. 
How will those pageants react to this? As you said, those lead-up pageants in the state level, they're still having the swimsuit competition. Are we losing this message if the whole thing isn't changed? Well, I think that once you are a feeder pageant, and I, would, I, I don't know for sure, Scott, and I hate to speculate, but I would have to imagine that if you are to be a feeder pageant from now on into Miss America, which still hold, is held in hugely high regard south of the border, that you have to abide by certain rules on how that pageant is run. So I think there's there, or excuse me, it will be now called a competition. However, you know, all these other competitions that are still, you know, your very typical pageant, I think it's going to take a little bit of time for them to turn around because, you know, the moms and dads who are older have obviously have very entrenched ways of thinking and believe that it's okay for little girls to be paraded around such as this. But I'm hoping when they see how successful, and I certainly hope that Miss America is successful, when they see how successful and how differently their daughters can be thought of without having them uh, undergo dental work and dentures and poofy hair and makeup, that their daughters can actually be themselves and still be successful. Hmm. Totally going to change subject. Did you see Bill Clinton on um, oh, Stephen Colbert last night answering to the Me Too movement? And credit to Stephen Colbert, because I didn't think he'd touch it after that other interview where it came up, and he put the boots to him. Well, you know it's interesting, and um, I, I think that Bill Clinton actually uh, had to dial back on how he answered those questions, and mm. he was... Like, obviously, he was so rattled. And when I watched that, you can totally see the veneer fall. Mm. You could totally see that this is long-held anger. And when that question was asked, I honestly, you know, he had to expect it. He could not think that he was not going to get that question asked. When he's putting himself up in front of cameras, he's no longer going to be treated with deference. He's a past president, but maybe he thought that meant hands off. That with the um, you know amplification of the Me Too movement, that obviously they were going to ask him about that, and that he should have had an answer ready. Hmm. He did, and he's a savvy guy. He's a savvy guy, and he's a smart guy. I've seen him, you know, speaking. I've hmm. seen him in interviews. There's not much that he can't handle, but he was 110% off his game, and he was clearly rattled. So then he had to dial back when he was on Colbert, but to the point where, um, uh, you know, on the Today Show this morning, what they did was that they actually, he, you know, um, Clinton said that he felt that his answer was taken out of context in the way that the piece was edited. But the Today Show doubled down on that and said, well, no, if you want to see the interview in its entirety, where we can show it to you. And in fact, here's how the sequence of questioning began. So this was a a real miss for him. Now, remember that he almost got impeached about it uh, from this. And I think what angers him is that... Here you have a sitting president who totally flouts all the rules and has done maybe, you know, worse things than Bill Clinton has ever done. And yet, you know, he's the Teflon Don and nothing sticks to him. And yet he's still being called on the carpet. It was not one of Bill Clinton's finer moments. It was very uncomfortable. Uh, And good for him. Uh, Alyssa Freeman, meaning good for the Me Too movement. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture (laughs) expert, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Did I clarify myself there? Have I set myself up here? No, no, no. You totally clarified yourself. Thank you, Alyssa, as always. All right, Scott. Always a pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.